I want you to look up here as soon as he can get that changed over to uh, our slideshow this morning, to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. I just want you to think about the, the truth and the power that's in this, this verse. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What a gift. I had a conversation with a parent not too long ago. Their daughter had answered a, a question at, at school and was wondering about it. And, and the, the question had to do with grace. And grace is something that we receive that we don't deserve. That's what this verse is talking about. Our sin, our brokenness, the wrong that we do, our thinking, our actions, our attitudes. Because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we sinners have been justified before a perfect and righteous God, a flawless God. You see, we are fractured people. He was raised to life for our justification. Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. He really is real. It happened. It's not fairy tale. It's not myth. Secular history records it. It is true. Scripture repeats it and reminds us of it. And our experience... And the reality of our own very lives testify to it. The entire history of humankind points to its reality. Now, who doesn't like a good story? How many book readers do we have here today? How many of you are, are you just love a good story? You love uh, reading a really good book. And then there are those like me who are terribly slow readers, and we just wait for the movie to come out, right? Now, I get that the movie is never, ever, and never will be as good as a, a good book. You just... Just can't describe things as well. But what does a well-written story always have in it? There's drama, there's, there's intrigue. Yeah, those are usually present, but, but there are other must-have components, and there's one main must-have component. Do you, you know what that is? It's a hero. It's a hero. And a, and a hero uh, is often surrounded by great sacrifice. A hero is someone who uh, is willing to risk their life, even unto death, to save others. And I'm so glad that there are heroes who are a part of my own personal story. My dad is one of them. Um, they are a part of all of our stories. If we take time to reflect on our life and our journey to this point, uh, I think we would all recognize that there have been heroes. There have been people who have been willing to sacrifice uh, maybe even their life for us on a personal level. Now, a few years ago, Pastor Ty Desenfance gave me a book called The Divine Drama. Uh, it was a, a great read. Uh, it challenged me to see the great story that is the Bible, and I don't mean story as in made up, but, but the great story as in narrative that is the true story God has written and continues to write. And the author, the author took me through a brief history of life and salvation in story form. This, this is what it looked like. I mean, the, the kind of story that gripped me 
uh, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and we definitely find in God's story a hero, don't we? One who made the ultimate sacrifice for all of us. That's Jesus. That is who we are worshiping this morning. That's who we honor. That's who we celebrate. Jesus Christ, our risen and living Savior. Now, I want you to think about the last great movie you saw, and maybe it's been a while. What, what is your all-time favorite movie? Think about that one. Or if you aren't into cinema and you don't really watch movies, what about a book? What is the, great, uh, the greatest book that you've ever read? Um, you just couldn't put it down. You know, you were like a gamer. It's like one more, one more level, one more level, one more chapter. One more. I just, just read this, and before you know it, it's 4 o'clock in the morning. What was it? Maybe, maybe it was the Lord of the Rings. You know, you followed the Fellowship of the Ring through uh, all of their life and death challenges to save the world. You know, these guys. Maybe you don't know them, but you... The interesting thing about this story, The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien was a believer. He was a theologian. And, and if, if you know much about the story, you know that there are representations of the Jesus figure. Um, there is a resurrection. Gandalf comes back to life. Um, and the, the good guys win in the end, right? Uh, maybe you recently read or watched one of the books from the Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis, again, a believer, a theologian, a contemporary of Tolkien, actually. And um, where Aslan the lion represents Jesus in the story, he's killed. The, the bad guys think they win, but what happens? Aslan comes back to life. Or maybe when we were going through the Armor of God series, you reread The Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory, a great story, about the journey of life that we all travel and the pitfalls that we meet in everyday life and, and how the armor prepares us for each of those. Or maybe you've seen the movie One Night with the King, which actually is a story about a king and a queen, Esther. Now, why are we so moved by these stories and why do we return? Why, why do we often empty out our wallets and we're willing to go? I mean, when the Lord of the Rings were coming out, we were, it's opening night, we're in Denver at the IMAX watching this. We gotta find the biggest screen in the country, right? To watch this. Really? 20 bucks a ticket? That's okay. 20, 40, 60, 80. Why? It's a great story. Now, in 1949, oh, this microphone is dry. I'm sorry if this is bugging you, but it's really bugging me. In 1949, a man by the name of Joseph Campbell made an observation. He discovered that narratives from all over the world, spanning various religions, races, and nations, circumstances throughout all history, all contain a similar pattern. He referred to it as a monomyth or the hero's journey. It goes something like this. There's a hero, although he or she may not be described as that yet, living in a familiar circumstance or what we might call an ordinary life. 
But then life gets thrown off by something. It could be some object of desire, the love for a man or a woman, or even the desire to see a wrong righted or a bad guy brought to justice. This brings on a confrontation of some sort. As we become clear as to what the confrontation is, we see the rising of a supreme antagonist. Someone or something whose goal it is to destroy the hero. And as the conflict grows, our hero is in great peril and danger, physically, emotionally, reputationally. A quest is born from this part of the story, and as the quest is played out, sometimes it's, it, of course, takes several movies to accomplish this. The Avenger series is no exception to that part. Right? The hero comes to a decision. Fight or flight. What am I going to do? What am I willing to risk? Is the quest worth the sacrifice required to accomplish the desired outcome? Of course, the true hero always steps up and is always willing to do whatever it takes. You know, I don't care. My life isn't as important. We've all seen movies like this, and we're cheering on the hero, and we want the bad guy to get his. Of course, the true hero always steps up and and they're willing to sacrifice even unto death. Finally, the hero or heroes, they win in the end. And you leave the theater going, oh man, that was so great. The conflict is resolved. There's this happily ever after. We experience a range of emotion from anger to sadness and sorrow to happiness and maybe even giddiness, all while sitting in a theater for a couple hours. Bruner says this, he says, the importance of this pattern is clear to Hollywood. Embracing the mythic power of the hero's journey enabled Walt Disney to capture the hearts and wallets of an entire generation. They know that films using this pattern will find an audience and that those who don't, won't. Now, I believe that not only is this journey a narrative in every great movie, but this journey and narrative is you and me. It's your story and my story, and it's God's story. Which is why it's so powerful in our lives. It's why we're so drawn to it, because it is reality. It's, it's reality depicted in a fictional story on a screen. Think about the movies that you've seen. The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Pinocchio, seriously, any of them, any of the good stories that you remember and were drawn into, it follows this pattern. Because life follows this pattern. And it is powerful to us. Since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, there has been a divine drama playing out in history. Brokenness and sin fractured our lives. Humanity needed a hero. We need a hero. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. Now, think about what you know about the gospel. The gospel is a word that simply means the good news of Jesus Christ, to the fact that Jesus came to die for us and, and he rose again. Perhaps the stories we wish were true are those that reflect the story that is true. 
Could it be that the hero's journey works so well in books and movies and resonates with us to such a deep level because they are God-given? Might they be pointing to a story that God wants us to encounter in our life? As I've reflected on the idea of the hero's journey, it has caused me to reflect on, on my own story and others. Think about your story. Think about how you've grown up and how you have experienced life. Are there any similarities? Um, where are you in the story today? Have you been living what you would term an ordinary life? Or, or maybe you are engaged in a battle with the supreme antagonist right now. Whoever that might manifest in your life to be. You're toe-to-toe. Maybe you are in the infirmary recovering from a recent battle or quest. Maybe you are on the verge of your happily ever after. Regardless of where we are, we are all a part of a much bigger story. And in that story, we see and experience something that I'm calling this morning a divine reversal. This is what happened to Esther in the Jewish nation. Now, I know we have guests this morning, and you may or may not be familiar with the story of Esther, the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Um, Let me just give you a gist of it so that that you know where we are. King Xerxes, the the Babylonian king, ruled over 127 provinces, lots and lots of area, including the nation of Israel, Um, had a bunch of heads of state, had this big months-long party. I mean, he's just, he's just, the wine is flowing, the money is flowing, he's, he's showing everybody how great and how powerful he is as a king. And it gets towards the end of, of this party and he decides that he wants his queen, Vashti, to dance before all of these nobles. He wants to show her off. Well, she refuses. She says, I'm not going to do that. There's this big, long discussion with, with some of his experts and they decide that that she needs to be deposed, and not only that, but, but every woman in the land needs to know that their husbands are in charge over them, etc., etc., etc. That's another part of the story. Well, they decide that they need to replace the queen. So what the king does is, oftentimes in children's stories, it's, it's presented as a, a beauty pageant, but for some it may have been. For others, like Hadassah, who was a Jewish girl, she was taken by force to be a part of the king's harem, and for months and months and months was kind of thrown into this competition. Well, turns out, it just so happened, which was not a coincidence, but a movement of God, uh, she becomes queen. He picks her. And while she is a queen, her, um, her, her Babylonian name is Esther. While she's queen, her adoptive father, Mordecai, who had raised her from a broken situation, saves the king by uncovering this evil plot to assassinate him. The king then elevates this man by the name of Haman, and kind of out of nowhere in the story, to be his number two over the nation, Haman gets disrespected by Mordecai and sets out to kill him and all of the Jewish people. In fact, the king authorizes it, and a date is set in the next year when all Jews in all 127 provinces, including Israel, are to be exterminated. And everybody knows this. The queen takes a risk to appear before the king without being summoned. 
huge risk considering what happened to the previous queen. I mean, she just refused to dance, and here's this other, uh, Esther is, is going to appear before the king without being called. She had no idea what was going to do, and she said, well, if I die, I die, but I got to do something. Well, <clears throat> he accepts her into his presence, says what, uh, he's just so enthralled with her. God is moving in his heart. And he says, what, what, what is your request? I will give you up to half the kingdom. I mean, he is just. She says, well, I want to, uh, I want to invite you and, and Haman to a banquet. And so they come to this banquet. And uh, during the banquet, the king's like, come on, tell me, tell me. What, what is your request? And she says, well, I, I have another request. I want to give another banquet tomorrow. I want you and Haman to come to another banquet. And then I will reveal what, what my request is. So the king's like, well, okay. I guess, and uh, Haman leaves this party really happy. And he walks out the, the gates, and there's Mordecai, refusing again to respect him and bow down, and he is just incensed by this. So he goes home, and he builds, uh, it, it's, it's unclear in, in the text which it was, but either a 75-foot sharp pole or a big giant set of gallows that he intends to execute Mordecai on the next morning. King can't sleep, has the history books read, finds out that Mordecai saved his life, wants to honor him. Haman ends up honoring him, uh, kind of some comedic part of the story. Um, and, and now it takes us to Esther chapter 7 and 8, which is where we are today. And Esther finally reveals, number one, that she's a Jew... And number two, as if the king had forgotten, and I guess maybe he had, that there has been an edict recorded by a man to kill all the Jews, and that man is Haman. Well, Haman, I, I'm guessing, um, probably needed to change his shorts in this moment. The king leaves the room to gather himself because he just doesn't know what to do. He's angry, he's feeling all of these different things. And Haven's like, well, if, he, if the king's out of the room, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come over here and sit on the couch next to the queen and see if I can't convince her to have mercy on me. <clears throat> well, it's illegal for a man, number one, to be alone with the queen or any other woman of the king's harem, let alone sit on the same couch. The king comes back in the room it's not good for Haman. In fact, if you, if you look at verse 7, or uh, if you look at verse 9 in chapter 7 of Esther, it says this, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. If that isn't a divinely arranged reversal in the storyline of the Jews and Esther and Mordecai, I don't know what is. There are so many, and we can't go into it this morning, but there are so many, it just so happened that this happened. And then Esther 8, 1 through 17 says, That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. 
And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet, weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And we're going to stop right there and finish that part of the story up next week in the life of Esther. But we see God at work all throughout the lives of the Jews here in this story. Even when their decisions don't seem to be as pure as they could be. They're imperfect people. They're broken people. Just like us. You see, God takes the evil and dark-powered situations and he reverses them. God has Esther and Mordecai in the perfect places at the perfect times. Their presumed destinies are reversed. The whole nation is scheduled to be killed, and God reverses that too. A divine reversal. Even when we aren't told of the obvious, you see, also in the book of Esther, you will find, if you read it, the name of God is not mentioned specifically. Not one time is God's name mentioned, but we know as we read the narrative that he's working. See, it feels like that oftentimes in our own life. God, I don't see you. I don't, I don't feel you. I don't, I'm, I'm not really recognizing your presence, but, and, and Satan will use that to leverage against us and say, you see, he's not real, but he is, and he's still working. You can count on it. Hundreds and hundreds of years, the the Jews waited for the Messiah to show up, and he didn't come, didn't come, didn't come, didn't come. Is God forgotten? No. God was waiting for his time. He was waiting for the right time for that divine reversal. We see divine reversals in the book of Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and, well, all of this. We see God working. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you look on your life in the past, you too can see. Though there may have been moments where you didn't recognize it, where God was working. He was going before you. And there are even times when we we won't even know. We're alive today because somebody was running late and then went into the ditch behind us or in front of us. Where if it had worked out differently, it would have been when we were there. God works every day in our life. It, and, and it is his ultimate work in reversing the effects of sin that we celebrate today. Fractured people, that's us. Meet your hero, Jesus Christ. Our flawless God, the one who made a great sacrifice on your behalf. There was only one way for the damage and consequences of sin to be reversed, and that's if there was a perfect sacrifice. None of us could ever be that sacrifice because none of us are ever perfect. Only Jesus. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, God pointed to this moment. God said, this is going to happen. This is what it's going to look like. I'm giving you a hint here. Here's a clue. This is what it's going to look like. When Jesus shows up, you'll know. 
Prophets proclaimed what was coming. And for hundreds of years, God worked and waited for the right moment on the timeline of human history to take action. And we celebrate that action today. The great divine reversal. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is risen! Just checking to see if you're awake. Jesus celebrated the last Passover supper with the disciples on Thursday. He endured a long night of betrayal and trials and accusations and torture. Then Friday morning, the wheels of injustice made their final turn and Jesus, the righteous one, was nailed to a cross around 9 o'clock in the morning. He took his last breath at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and was put into the tomb just before dark, which was the beginning of the Sabbath. And then after a silent Saturday, further evidence that Jesus was in fact dead. Look, Romans took pride in their ability to torture and kill people. They did not put Jesus... Uh, take Jesus down off the cross sort of asleep or just unconscious. No, he was dead. And then early Sunday morning, we are given a glimpse of what happens next in the New Testament. Matthew 28, 1 through 15. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For, the, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. That's easy for you to say. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. The tomb was empty. It was empty. Then we read in Luke chapter 24, 13 through 49, and I really want to read this. If if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 24 and and kind of follow along, 13 through 49. But this this is kind of, this is how Jesus meets most of us. In our daily life, As we walk the road of life, we're living, we're experiencing. Now that same day, the same day that the women had found the tomb empty, two of them, two of the the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood, they stood still, their, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? How is it possible that you have not heard of Jesus Christ who was crucified and buried? It would, it would be like talking to someone right now who had never heard of COVID-19. How on earth is it po- This is such a huge event. 
Everybody in the land had heard and maybe many witnessed Jesus being crucified. What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb earlier this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. They're still downcast about this. They're still bummed out. Verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How can you miss it? This divine reversal. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, No, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, I love this. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. In fact, they would proclaim the truth of the resurrection for the rest of their lives. Through ridicule and betrayal and danger and even torture, they would testify to what they saw with their very own eyes, the resurrected Messiah. I love what Chuck Colson says about the disciples and the truth of the resurrection. If if you're old enough to remember the 70s, you'll know who Chuck Colson was. He he was a new Christian. Chuck Colson uh, actually voluntarily pled guilty to obstruction of justice in 1974 and served seven months in Alabama's Maxwell Prison for his part in the Watergate scandal. This is what he said. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Luke says that after the two who saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus were still talking to everyone, verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
What a moment that would be. The one who you trusted, who, who said he was going to change the world, who died, who you thought lost, didn't win, and now he's standing right before your very eyes, having conquered death. Death has been swallowed up and defeated by the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.54, Paul writes this, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written in the Old Testament will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus answered in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's in Christ alone that we have eternal life. It's in Christ alone that we can have real and true and authentic forgiveness of sin and real and true and authentic joy and peace. In Romans 10, 9, Paul says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There will occur a divine reversal in your soul, in your life. And you will never be the same again. And if you're not, you need to go back to that point and say, did that really happen? Did I truly surrender my life to Jesus Christ? Let's let's reevaluate things here. What's going on? At the end of Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, Sam, one of the central characters, awakens to find friends whom he thought dead, alive, and all around him. Gandalf, he said, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed in the sound of music or like water in a parched land. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Everything sad is going to come untrue. Christ is risen. A divine reversal has occurred. Death is undone. Now, we still experience it in the physical life, but as far as eternity is, we will not, as Christ followers, those who put our trust, faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, experience spiritual death. We will experience spiritual life. And I would also say it's not just some life that we have to wait to die to experience, but we experience peace and joy of another world in this present world which we live in today. You see, a great shadow has departed. Sin and death and hell have been defeated. The Lamb wins. So let me ask you, is your life fractured? Mine sure is. But though it's fractured, there is great joy. Why? Because my Savior lives. My Savior lives. Have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If not, why not in this moment right here, today? Why not believe? Why not acknowledge finally that history hasn't lied, that Jesus was real, and that he was crucified, and that he 
was resurrected and seen again by hundreds and hundreds of people. These Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were, were written within 60 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was, it was a well-known event. There would, there would have been letters to the editor all throughout Jerusalem and Israel if, if what John and, and Luke and Peter had written weren't true. Thousands of people would have said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Right? Fake news. It's not real. So why not confess your attempts to live your life on your own terms and surrender to the only one who has the power and the love to save you and to mold you into the you that he has created you to be? On his terms, it is the truth. Jesus is the Messiah and he sacrificed himself and resurrected from the dead so that we can live a flawless God for a fractured people. Experience forgiveness and life and joy and peace even when evil and sadness and pandemic seem to be winning. And as we continue to live our stories within God's greater story, we're going to experience four R's, and these are really quick. Worship team, you can come on up here for our, our closing songs. Four R's as we embrace the promise of future glory because death has been swallowed up. The first R is a reward. May we not grow weary in doing good. As we live our story in God's story, let's sow grace and mercy and love. See, grace is receiving something we don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving something we do deserve. So may we be gracious to those around us and merciful to those around us. And Scripture tells us that, that we will reap what we sow. So don't give up in doing good. Do good. For there will be a reward. Uh, number two is a request. If Esther's request was answered by a tyrant king, how much more will our heavenly Father, who loves us, give us good gifts and, and give gifts to those who ask? Ask him. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to protect you. Ask him to provide for you. He bids us to come. A reward and a request and a reversal. This is the one we need to remember and celebrate today, every day. May we not forget the greatest reversal of them all is the empty tomb, the evidence of the resurrection. You see, every time you watch a Disney movie, you should think, that hero, that represents Jesus. See, he's going to win in the end. The bad guy, they, they don't win. As much as I sort of feel like maybe there should be a movie you go to watch and, and you just leave the movie miserable because it didn't turn out the way you hoped it would, it wouldn't be long before people wouldn't go see that movie. Why? Because it doesn't fit the pattern. And that pattern is true for you and me. With Jesus Christ as our Savior, these fractured lives begin to be healed. A request a reward, a request, a reversal, and finally, a rejoicing. Everything sad is going to come untrue. See, when Jesus returns and it's all over, 
There will be no tears, no crying, no pain, no bad decisions, only life. I can't wait. But even in the midst of the garbage we live in today, the hard things, the difficult things, the tragedy, there are many things that are given to us as gifts that we celebrate and that we can have joy. So let us praise the Lord. Let's rejoice. Let's stand and, and let's sing.